The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you are not alone when you do. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. And Trevor, we are at the end of giving season. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so much giving, Ify. I'm tapped out of giving. Well, you and everyone else, apparently, because November and December is when there is a spike in people donating and volunteering. And well, that's done. But I want to see for myself just how true that is when it comes to volunteering. So I'm hitting the streets of Toronto to ask. So the question is, do you volunteer? I did, I did, but now I have to work, so I don't have so much time for volunteer. Okay. If I definitely had more time in my day, I think that I, I would, because I work very many hours. Yes. Yes. You want to call out your boss right now? And... <laughs> no, she's actually really good in other ways. Yeah, I wanted to see this Christmas, but, you know, I guess I just wasn't able to find where to volunteer. I, I don't have the time. I thought a lot uh, of times to do something, uh, but uh, to organize it and uh, to find the time is uh, very, very hard. It's just like the work balance, work-life balance, right? So it kind of makes it hard to find that time to volunteer. Does anyone volunteer anymore? Listen, that's what I started to wonder until I met Andrea. So when I asked if you could talk about volunteering, you were you were pointed immediately to you here. What? <laughs> All you do is volunteer? Well, no, I do work too. <laughs> but I only work four days a week, so okay. I have more time. Oh. Uh, and that's only because I'm lucky enough not to pay market value on my apartment, so I can work four days a week. That's a very important qualifier. So if you have the ability, so yeah. I volunteer in healthcare, also in the arts. Some have closed because of pandemic and haven't come back. Yeah. Uh, but I still have my tried and trues. Yeah. What drives you to volunteer? With the arts, it's because they don't have enough money to put things on. Yeah. So I want to help in a way I can, and I can't donate financially, so I donate time. Healthcare, the need is there and the impact is immediate. Yeah. And so being able to hold a baby or read a bedtime story to someone is uh, really nice when yeah. their parents need a break. As someone who volunteers a lot, is there something you've noticed that it's given you to give your time? A community of other volunteers. Do you find some of the same people volunteering in multiple different areas yeah. or who connect you to new opportunities? Yeah. Um, like I've done some random volunteering because other volunteers have reached out and said, hey, can you help because we're short? And then you discover a whole new cause or a new thing, which maybe someone personally set up. Yeah. And, and so those are always nice to learn about. Fair. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. You know, she makes a good point. Volunteering can bring you community. It can help out. But like we heard earlier, there are so many reasons that people don't, which is what's leading to the volunteer crisis that we're seeing right now. Yeah, and Volunteer Canada has reported that up to 65% of organizations are struggling because of a lack of volunteers and that one in three are having to reduce or cancel services altogether. With so many people struggling to find the time and the energy to volunteer lately, what is motivating those who do? Today on Now or Never, we're rolling up our sleeves and joining people giving their time and lending a helping hand to their communities. I knew that I had to start doing something because you can't just be sad, right, and sit back. So I started getting involved and just a little bit more at a time and it makes me feel good that I'm doing something. You don't want to let your radio station die because it would be like losing a big part of your voice box. It's a community jewel, it's a community tool. People put too much effort into creating this place. We're not going to let it go. 
In some cases, people are telling me and the other volunteers things they wouldn't say to their own families because we're neutral. And it's a real honor, I think, to bear witness to somebody who is transitioning out of this life into the next. This, this is, is no, now, er, no one, oh, never, we should have decided who was going to volunteer. You know, if you, my kids are getting at that age now where they're getting into sports, and I'm constantly getting these emails asking for volunteers to coach those sports. And you immediately say, where do you need me? How can I show up? What time? <laughs> I wish I was. I, I actually think to myself, you know, what? I hope they find someone. And then I go about my day as if nothing ever happened. And I never think about how by me saying no or not responding, it means that someone else has to step up and say yes over and over and over again. Press break! Press break! Go, let's go, get over! Good job with the press break, keep it going! Let's move the ball! So this weekend, I plan on taking maybe a nap. Uh, I might watch a movie at some point in time. What's your weekend plans? Uh, yeah, Friday actually, uh, my basketball team plays in Stonewall at 8 o'clock. So that'll be done around 9.30 if the tournament runs on time. By the time I drop my carload of girls off and I'm home, it'll probably be just before 11. Go to bed, wake up, go back to Stonewall. Uh, I got two more games out there for basketball on Saturday and then whip over to Niverville to coach hockey and then get up and go to Seven Oaks Arena to coach hockey against Westman. And then maybe actually have dinner with somebody <laughs> on yeah. Sunday night. <laughs> yeah. Can I just say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I think you're lazy. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Ashley Van Eglin, and I'm a volunteer coach in the community with the Winnipeg Avril Strip Play Hockey Team, as well as uh, I've done six stints with the provincial U18 female hockey team. And I'm a phys ed teacher and department head at St. James Collegiate, where I coach track, cross country, and basketball. I don't know, just passion, and the kids want to play and want to give them a good experience. So, Do you ever eat, sleep, like see friends, do, do anything? Um, yeah, no. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough. I do miss my friends a lot. I miss out on, on family things. I miss out on a lot to do with my nieces and nephews and, and my parents and stuff like that. I don't see them as much as I would like to, but they they realize that I do it because I love it and I'm making a difference in, in, in kids' lives and that, and the kids are making a difference in my life. How did you first get into it? I just felt that like my coaches throughout my um, my school years were always such an instrumental part of my life and my development as an athlete and an individual, and I always wanted to be able to be that person for uh, people that I, I taught. and. And I did grow up a lot too in the community playing sports and it was always someone's dad coaching us. It was never um, a volunteer outside of a family member. So I did want to be able to be that kind of female role model. And when you don't have enough volunteers in the building and you're the phys ed teacher, you tend to just pick up the slack and, and, and coach where you can to make sure the kids get the experience. Finish, 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 finish. Out of way. I still get text messages. I DM'd by a, a student that graduated 12 years ago and just thanked me for everything I did for her. And, and you know, she, she just was like, we weren't super close in high school, but the conversations we had really mattered and it really helped her. And it came out of left field. And it was like, puts things in perspective that even when sometimes when things are tough and you feel like you're giving up a lot to coach or you're running from one thing to the next thing, right? And maybe you don't feel as appreciated by some, but then you get a text like that and you feel super appreciated. And it does make a world of a difference and they probably don't know how much of a difference it makes but it makes a lot of a difference yeah does it ever bother you that it's a challenge to find volunteers I mean yeah <laughs> yeah it is bothersome sometimes you know especially in a school environment or something like that where you're coaching three four teams and you you know and, and you you can't really find volunteers to fill the last holes but when you then when you start talking to the staff everyone has a reason so um 
yeah, I can't really count them out or get upset with them when they've got their own stuff going on in their own families and struggles or health issues or anything like that. So uh, it's tough, but we're getting a lot of alumni um, kids coming back, and that's another thing, right? You give a good experience, then the kids want to come back and give that experience to somebody else, and then it's just like the chain and the yeah. chain effect. It just keeps going down the ladders. Okay, so um, we also know that we haven't really been getting the greatest first pass coming out of our zone. We are picking up a lot of rims, right? We're under a lot of pressure on the wall, so this drill is actually going to start off a rim pass. You know, volunteering okay. is all about giving back to something. That being said, you. You have these kids that you've been coaching. What have, what have these kids given you over the years? Yeah, I mean, it's super rewarding. Um, holy, why am I so emotional today? Um, super rewarding. Um, just the memories, the, the smiles, the laughter, um, pride. <laughs> Sorry. Are you surprised you're being emotional about this? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, I think the biggest part is watching them develop and then um, go through those tough situations and uh, grow as a person and an athlete and, you know, be relentless, face some adversity, right? And, yeah, and just such such a proud moment when they... Uh, graduate out of the programs. Just like seeing the kids grow up. Uh, there's girls I coach on the Avros that I've known since they were like five, six years old. So uh, yeah, just seeing them develop into respected young women in their community when they sign those university contracts. That's a big moment for us coaches and I don't think they realize that. They're probably like, why does my coach want a picture with me? But that is a really proud moment for us, especially for those players that have been in our program for two, three years. Yeah. So. Okay, let's get the key about. Remember, If you had to walk away from coaching, what would you be walking away from? Who? Um, well, I've done it my whole life, so I'd have to find a new identity, I guess, because it's when everyone talks to me or sees my name or says hi to me, it's 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 Coach Ash or or something like that. So, um, yeah, if I walked away from coaching, it would be. That it's a huge part of my life and right now that I'm it's funny my social media is like teacher by day coach by night so that's kind of my my self-identity and um, I know there is going to come a point where like you know personal life needs more time or family needs more time and, and things and priorities change but right now I still love what I do and and when people ask me why why I do it as much as I do and you know why am I still doing it it's just and are you ever going to quit coaching? I always just say, well, I'll do it as long as I love it. When I stop loving it, it becomes a chore. I'll just stop doing it. Oh, my gosh. She just goes and goes and goes. It's, it's truly amazing. Hope there's some rest for you soon, Ashley. Thank you. Volunteering isn't always a choice, and this goes beyond being voluntold to do something when there just isn't the resource to pay people to do something that is necessary in community. Volunteers are the only way you get things done. I've lived in this little community for 27 years, and every time there was some kind of a incident or a crisis or something's going wrong, uh, you'd have all kinds of people coming out and standing there with their mouths open, you know, what can we do? What are we going to do? And nobody could do anything because the nearest emergency services are, you know, 30 minutes away. And if there's a fire uh, or a car crash or something like that, you're just basically standing around waiting or you're getting in there and trying to do something with your bare hands with no equipment. Ian Hicks lives in McLeese Lake, a tiny community on the Caribou Highway in the rugged interior of British Columbia. And the job that pays Ian is as a landfill garbage contractor. But the job he has given hours of his time to is as a volunteer firefighter. I'm not one to go around feeling helpless all the time. I thought uh, I'm going to get myself a, a fire truck and a lot, of, a lot of guys in the town, hey, oh, you can't do that. You don't know what you're doing. I said, I'm just going to, I'm doing this. So I, I uh, saw a truck on the side of the uh, highway for sale. I think it was $5,000. And uh it, as it turns out, it's the same fire truck that's in uh, the movie First Blood. 
Sylvester Stallone. This time, he's fighting for his life. First Blood. Uh, with uh, Sylvester Stallone that uh, was filmed in Hope, and it says Hope Fire Department right on the side of it. Uh, it had nothing in it, uh, and there's no books, manuals, no gear, no hoses, just the truck, but it did pump water during one or two of the first sort of incidents where we tried to do something, uh, put out a fire that had started. Uh, it was quite uh, chaotic and disorganized. I can remember one incident, uh, there was a forest fire that had got started, and it was in the, the trees uh, behind the corner store, and it was really growing. And uh, everybody said, we've got to do something, do something. So we drove up into the field with the truck, you know, no gear whatsoever. I think I had a pair of shorts and sandals on, and we got the hose out. And I remember dragging it up into the bush, and, you know, it fired up, and there's water shooting out of it. And I looked around, and the fire was so big. I was like uh, Mickey Mouse compared to the elephant. I mean, I just looked around and said, this is craziness. And then with no radios, no training, no communication, apparently the, uh, the water bomber was coming, and, it was, and we were right in the path of it and uh, ended up running out of the bushes and jumping in the truck, and it wouldn't start, and we rolled down the hill, dragging the hoses behind us. It was just, you know, just a gong show. It is hard to believe that the guy who is out fighting a fire in shorts and flip-flops is now, years later, the fire chief of the McLeese Lake Volunteer Fire Department. So if you are ever in the Caribou region needing help, Ian and his crew of volunteer firefighters and their three fire trucks will jump into action. We've had uh, forest fire calls, um, a lot of car crashes, uh, vehicles flipped over, uh, people over the bank. Um, then nighttime calls for, uh, um, having trouble breathing. Uh, there was a pregnant woman that, uh, thought she was going into labor. So something's happening and somebody calls 911. You're a guaranteed 30 plus minutes. Now, one of our people might only live five minutes away and they're going to get that text and they go, oh my God, that's Bobby's place. That's just down the street. And they're going to get over there in that critical time when you might be able to do some CPR or just, uh, you know, get the person ready for transport, you know, so that when the ambulance does show up, you know, they're ready to go and you can get, it's just, uh, it's kind of a, that critical, you know, 30 minutes uh, that you could save them. And so we've had quite a few calls where there was just a handful of us and we managed to make a big difference. You know, even with our little ragtag group and our 20, 35 year old fire truck. This group of volunteers is literally their region's first line of defense. Whether that's fighting brush fires or rescuing people stranded on the highway or responding to medical emergencies. But now, the McLeese Lake fire crew, they need help. We currently don't have a fire hall. So uh, without a fire hall, it's, it's pretty challenging to uh, because you have no home base. And so stuff is scattered all over the place. There's some in my front yard. There's some in the neighbor's front yard and a couple things in the garage. And uh, a fire hall for us, it's going to make it so that we can be warm and have trucks full of water inside a heated building in the wintertime. And currently, all our trucks are frozen outside in the snow. And we have a one small truck that we drill holes in the lake and we pump water out of the lake into 1,000-liter plastic containers, and that's how we would deal with a fire in the wintertime. If anybody's uh, thinking of trying to do something like this, you know, go for it, because uh, you can make a difference, and uh, every little effort counts. It only takes the will to, to want to help. That conversation with Ian was from a few years ago, and we reached out to find out how things have been going, and I wish I had better news. The Rambo truck has been retired, and overall volunteer numbers are down, but there is now land for the fire hall, and fundraising continues to one day have it built. Good luck, Ian. Today on Now or Never, we're finding out what it takes to volunteer. Hello, kitties. There's a little kitty right there. Good morning. It is still dark out as Michelle Botel peers down a steep embankment in a vacant lot in downtown Prince Rupert, wearing a headlamp, snow pants, and carrying a container of cat food. So the trail's right down here. So we're going to go out uh, 
carefully step down the hill in, on what, what's actually literally a cat trail. You know how you see game trails out in the woods? This is literally from the cats. And um, some of them are very shy and they won't come out to eat if we're there lingering. And I'm going to put some food in the dishes here and some water. Hi, I'm Michelle Botel and I'm a colony caretaker here in Prince Rupert of feral and semi-feral cats. I'm just out this morning um, feeding and checking in on a colony that I'm working with. Volunteering to look after a colony of feral cats is terrifying to me, but Michelle, she is out here almost every day driving around Prince Rupert in her orange van to check in on them. This is a port city that relies on feral cats to control rats. But there are now more than 3,000 feral cats running around living a pretty tough life. Something Michelle saw every day as a city bus driver. Just driving like all over town all day long and I, I just noticed cats everywhere. And so I started asking and, and finding out, you know, that there is this overpopulation here. and. I guess a lot of people say when the mill shut down, you know, a lot of people moved away and just left their cats. And then these, you know, more or less abandoned pets, um, you know, start looking around for food and shelter and, and uh, they reproduce uh, sometimes exponentially. So some of the colonies, you know, like really explode. People have found kittens that have been preyed on by the ravens and it's not a pretty sight. Um, there's a pretty high population of wolves in this, the Prince Rupert area and I would imagine that the eagles probably get in there and, and roust out the cats as well. So they're very uh, cautious, these cats. Okay, so then we're gonna scoot on out of here pretty quickly so that they'll come in and eat. And then there's a couple of other branches of this, this uh, colony that we'll wander up and give some food to. Okay, kitties. Yeah, so I grew up with dogs and um, I guess I uh, never really knew much about cats at all. I think maybe my dad was always scared of them, so he kind of <laughs> put this fear in. So yeah, I've always kind of thought that cats were kind of otherworldly and a little, you know, scary kind of way you know because I can see fear in people's eyes when they're walking and these cats are near and it's uncertainty and fear and but uh, having you know spent time with them over the past year I can see that that's completely wrong like they're they're smart they're sensitive they're kind of model little citizens really <laughs> uh, and yet they're they're some of the most vulnerable members of the community you know, like I'll squat down, they'll be milling around in behind me, and, and no, I've never been bitten. Uh, I've, we've named them, we talked to them. Um, you know, there's one sickly little guy that we named Luke, and uh, he looks kind of scary. Like he's, you know, his hair is all patchy, and he looks like he just stuck his finger in a light socket. But he mills around, he lets me pat him now, which was almost unheard of. Here, kitty, here they be. If nobody were taking care of the colonies, they would generally probably perish. Um, I'm very selfish with my time, but I've always worked with marginalized people. Like I did 30 years working with people burned out. And when I saw all these cats here and the numbers and started learning about them and, you know, saw one get hit by a car and I I knew that I had to start doing something because you can't just be sad, right, and sit back. So I started getting involved and just a little bit more at a time and just actually coming down and, and caretaking them and, and, you know, letting the, some of them rub against my legs and I pat them and talk to them and it makes me feel um, good that I'm doing something. When I, when I see one of them run out of a shelter that, you know, I've created and placed there for them, it's like, yes, they're using that shelter. Yeah, because their little selves, you know, need to be kind of tucked in at night and, and kept warm.
I guess I kind of love them. Like, yeah, they're just, they're just so beautiful. Like they're just neat little beings. Um, I've got my own kids. I've got adult kids. I've got grandbabies. It's not like I'm this crazy lady kind of running around trying to make somebody need me. I actually, <laughs> I don't like anyone needing me too much. But uh, I guess with cats, yeah, that part of their stereotype is true. Like they, they don't over need, right? They don't over need anybody. They just, they need, you know, the food, shelter, a little bit of love, and then they just kind of go, okay, well, I'm, I'm good for the day now. <laughs> Michelle isn't just doing this on her own. She's volunteering with PERS, Paws United Rescue Society in Prince Rupert. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. And I'm Trevor Deneen. And today, we have volunteered to spend the whole hour shining a light on volunteers. The time they put in, the work they do, and the difference that they can make in their communities. I love how how heartfelt you are about that, Trevor, when you have said you don't volunteer. Yeah, but I can still put it out there in a very heartfelt manner, right? <laughs> like, it sounds good when I say it. But yes, I do. I should volunteer more. But I know that you, you've, you've put your time in, in volunteering in a lot of places. First of all, I want to say, Trevor, I've seen you give a lot of time to your neighbors, your community. There are other ways to volunteer beyond just giving your time in an organization. Mm -hmm, That's true. Yeah. I think partially why I have volunteered a bit in my life is because I was raised with us just doing things for community and my family in a way that didn't seem like, oh, we're out to volunteer. It was just like, oh, this person needs help or, you know, this thing needs to be created. And and you just do that. Mm -hmm. Or this thing may shut down if we do not get there to help out, which is why one small town radio station in Ontario is putting out the call for volunteers so they don't have to go off the air for good. Testing mics. Hey, folks, it's DJ Lyle for CHCR. And I just wanted to give a huge shout out to the Eganville Leader for having us on the front page several weeks ago. And thanks so much to our community and the people for wanting to volunteer and help out and donations and new memberships. So we really, really appreciate that, guys. It'll uh, it'll really, really help. And we still need more help. So uh, you can contact... So I'm Lyle Davis, and I volunteer at CHCR Radio in Killaloo, Ontario, 102.9. 104.5, and we've been going since 1997. And uh, just over the years, we have seen uh, a slow but steady decrease in volunteers. There's a lot of things that need to be done at the station in order to keep it going. You know, we need uh, someone to go out and get uh, advertising. Uh, we need people to do more programming. We need people to sort CDs and records and, you know, upkeep of equipment and it's going to be a very difficult situation to keep it going if we don't have enough volunteers because we nobody gets paid here it's it's an entirely volunteer run organization so we need people help keep this uh, jewel of the community going and now i'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the community on the farm dance at the Kilu lions hall it's a theme dance cash bar with dj april hutter or free with a costume. Uh, we're a town of about 700 people, give or take. And it's a nice little community. Everybody knows each other. And everybody just decided that, hey, let's just do it. Let's put together a radio station. It was kind of like building, like, I don't know, uh, like a new fire hall in, in the town. It, it was like a monumental achievement for, for the people, you know? Yes. Here I am, and here we are. It's been a pretty lucky day already. No need to change that up now. You're listening to CHCR Homegrown Community Radio. Uh, It's been challenging since 2021 because the uh, former building owner and station manager passed away, and uh, he was a really big father figure of mine. 
my 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 biological father uh, was never around, so um, I was really inspired by his name's Peter Peter Benner. Nice uh, groove going uh, so far on the show, eh? Got it, eh? It meant everything to him. Yeah, it was like his. Uh, he didn't have any kids, uh, so it was kind of like his baby. And uh, he said one day, a few months before he passed, he was talking to somebody when I was in the room, and um, the financial situation was getting rather dire. And he said out loud, whatever happens, I will do whatever it takes to keep this station going. That's what he said. That was a swank tune. Boy, wasn't it swanky? And boy, was it ever. I hope they're working on a new one. And I hope at least they're getting some live uh, gigs under their belt like every other performing artist. Canada's a big place. There should be enough to go around on the merry-go-round. He taught me a lot of really, really good, uh, valuable skills. And so to see him go... Um, was really hard on me and everybody. He was well known throughout the community, um, and I was just the uh, the person with the most seniority and experience to kind of um, take his place. I don't own the building, but I became the uh, station manager. So yeah, it's it's been tough the last three years. Not only that, we had uh, in 2022 our secretary and uh, regular DJ passed away from cancer. Um, about a year and a half ago, we had uh, our our treasurer pass away from a heart attack. So yeah, it's uh, I don't mean to like be a downer or anything, but like that's just the reality of what's going on. So yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely tough on me personally because I I've known all of those people personally and and very very well. And um, well, you don't want to let your radio station die because it would be like losing. A big part of your voice box, I guess, would be a good example. I hate to use the line from my favorite movie, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, but this uh, this radio station has enough blood and uh, tears from me that I can almost consider it a blood relation. <laughs> it's a community jewel, it's a community tool, and it doesn't deserve to drift away. You know what I mean? People put too much effort into creating this place. We're not going to let it go. Okay, guys. I'm going to get started with the show. I really, really uh, enjoy the music. Gives me a good feeling. And I'll be back in a bit. I left your house this morning. Ify, we have to save this radio station. <laughs> okay. Honestly, I don't know if it's because we're in radio, but oh, I do not want to see some local radio station go under... So if you happen to be in the Killaloo region and you have some time to spare, you want to help out, you want to give back to the community, please give Lyle a call. Help save CHCR. Reach out, give them a call. Lyle would love to hear from you. It was in Cajun, I saw the constellations reveal themselves one star. Vanessa Genier is hard at work hunched over a sewing machine, putting together a colorful quilt. The quilt that I'm currently working on is 12 blocks. There's a couple of stars on here. There's a bear paw on here. There's some flower fabric. There's some blue fabric. There's a, um, a star with medicine wheels in the corner, so the white, yellow, red, and black. For the past two and a half years, Vanessa has been volunteering her time making quilts for residential school survivors. It's something the Missanabe Cree woman felt she had to do after the remains of children were found on the site of the former residential school in Kamloops. It all started because I was off on sick leave. So I'm a single mother. I work full-time as a bookkeeper and I quilt as my hobby, as my passion. And I was off and I was hearing all these stories of the children being found. And my great-grandparents were residential school survivors. My grandfather was hidden in the bush with his siblings, so he wouldn't have to attend residential school. 
And I just knew I had to do something. I heard about people doing walks, people running, biking, raising money. And I thought, well, I can't do those kind of things. And I was just sort of standing in my living room going, well, what can I do? And it was like a voice said, you quilt. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to get people together and let's just make some blocks, make a few quilts and call it a day. So my plan was to make 215 blocks plus one because I needed 16 to make 18 quilts. That was my goal. Um, I thought it would take me till December, maybe January, February to make those 18 quilts. Um, and since then, well, I've made a, we've made about 750 quilts. To be clear, Vanessa didn't make all of those 750 quilts on her own. She actually started a Facebook group called Quilts for Survivors, asking people to make a quilted square that she could add to a blanket. Word spread fast though, and that's when the packages started arriving. Beautiful, thank you. So this comes to us from Jillian out of Toronto, and she sent two packages. Oh, wow, look at this. Look at this! Oh, that is nice. I have about 20 volunteers locally that come at least once a week to help me um, put the quilts together. Um, I'm getting donations from all across Canada, US, Mexico, Australia, Norway, Hawaii. Um, it's just phenomenal. So I was getting you know, large envelopes full of fabric, thread, batting. And then I was getting big boxes. One box was at least 60 pounds. It had a warning label that it was heavy. And I knew that things were going a bit crazy when all of my delivery guys, whether it was, whether it was Pure Later, Canada Post, FedEx, whatever, they all were like, they said, you get lots of packages, but what are you doing? Because my house already looked like a quilt shop. I literally looked like a quilt shop. My living room, at one point, I think it was in September or August, I was like, okay, hey, people, you got to slow down because Christmas is coming and I have nowhere to put my tree. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel very, a little claustrophobic in my living room because it's just covered and there's fabric everywhere. People are just so giving. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I didn't realize when I started this project was how much the people making the blocks or making the quilts have benefited from this project. They've thanked me for allowing them to provide something to survivors. But I wanted to provide some healing that they know that what they went through wasn't their fault. And to thank them because of them, because they survived, I'm able to be, to proudly say I'm an Indigenous woman. And I can vote, I can practice my cultures, my traditions, I can teach my children um, those things without, without fear without any reprimand. I'm free to walk on my land. Um, and that's what I, I try to send out in these quilts as I make them, is all of that, and to thank them for surviving. In many indigenous cultures, giving and receiving a quilt is a tradition used to honor someone, which is why so many people have been flocking to request a quilt for themselves or a loved one. The Quilts for Survivors Facebook page has become a place where survivors from all over are sharing photos of themselves wrapped up in their quilts and connecting with the people who made them, including Gloria Lallman and her daughter Dolores Daniels. And as you can see, mine has a lot of um, a lot of orange uh, sewn into it. It's beautiful. So this is mine. It's almost like a star blanket too. You can see that there are the oranges and um, there's red in there. I'm going to treasure this. Both Gloria and her daughter Dolores went to Gordon's Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan, a school with a terrible reputation for abuse. It was also the last federally funded residential school to close in 1996. I was amazed that, that um, I just got this out of the blue again. Like I didn't know who, who sent it to me or, or what, but then I read the letter and uh, I thought, well, this is, this is a true recognition. And um, it, it also, um, I guess, gives you a sense that there are people out there that know the story and they want to keep it alive by sewing these quilts, the colors and the, the, 
the meaning, the message behind the quilt, mm -hmm. and that they are um, they're looking for answers, especially for um, the children that are found. The children that are being found in the, in the burial sites, they could have been um, leaders and nurses and doctors and warriors. They could have been a lot of things too, uh, you know, amongst us uh, that uh, we'll never know. But we can only we can only hope and, and pray for our children that that they will become the next leaders and and, and the like. So, but having the quilt um, meant a lot to me. And I mentioned to my to my girls, I said, "This is beautiful," you know, because when when I was in residential school, we just had a little itchy army kind of blanket to cover with, <laughs> and and I wish I had a quilt like this. <laughs> You know, there's there's a, the history of not only the residential school era, but then it carries on with um, the intergenerational impacts and you know the things that we face as uh, within Canada through racism. And uh, there is red in here. And um, I lost my daughter in 2017, um, so she's part of the uh, missing and murdered. And so to me, that red also represents her, you know? And um, yeah, it's been difficult. You know, in some respects, I would say the yellow to me is kind of like a, um, a color of hope and, you know, it represents like the sunshine and happiness. And so, you know, that there's hope for the future and the future for our children and grandchildren will be different, you know, than what we went through. read them and hear about them I just want to make more quilts I just want to get more out there get more quilts in the hands of the survivors I just I wish I could just sew 10 hours a day all day long <laughs> every day so we can't go I would love to go and meet every survivor shake their hand tell them how much I support them but that's not possible but by sending it, it's like sending a virtual hug. I can't come to you. I can't offer you any support. Um, I can't be there with you to walk your journey that you're walking. But I can provide you with this, this blanket that's handmade by, sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's 12 or 15 people that have worked on different parts of this quilt. And I can we can provide you some comfort, some support so that you know that you're not alone. You know that your fellow Canadians and other citizens of the world care about what happened to you and they don't want it to happen again. And they're, they want to work with you and they don't want you to feel alone anymore. You're not on your journey alone anymore. You have support now. So it's a virtual hug. We could all use a virtual hug every once in a while. Since this story originally aired, Vanessa's project has grown. Sewers from around the world have joined Vanessa, volunteering time and fabric, and have made more than 4,000 quilts for residential school survivors. There's no slowing these sewing machines down. The goal is to make another 2,000 this year, so if you're a survivor and you would find comfort in a quilt, visit quiltsforsurvivors.ca and you can request one. Today on Now or Never, we are meeting volunteers who are motivated to get things done. When Angela McBride opens up her laptop every morning to check her emails, she never knows when a message like this might pop up. We've had a request for a vigil for an 80-year-old person at Deer Lodge Centre who is expected to pass in the next few days. Uh, family members live out of town looking for people today, starting 5 to 8, then Saturday, 8 till 11, 11 till 2, etc. As always, if you want to volunteer later than 8 p.m. and or overnight, please let me know. Thank you. You never know when they're going to come in and they just land in our inbox and if we're available, we sign up to, to sit a vigil. When an individual is actively dying and don't have any friends or family nearby, 
They contact Palliative Manitoba to sit vigil, we call it. We'll have their favorite music perhaps playing in the background. We'll hold hands. Um, the medical people say that hearing is possibly one of the last senses to go. So even if someone is unconscious, they might be able to hear you. And so that's why the Bible reading, if that's important to someone, that might be, and the music being played. There can be a degree of restlessness um, at end of life. So you don't necessarily know what you're walking into when you're sitting vigil, but generally it's a very peaceful time. But the idea is to not leave this earth alone. For the last nine years, Angela McBride has been volunteering to sit with people at the end of their lives, and not just at bedside vigils. She's also making weekly visits to people she's matched with who want an end-of-life companion in the time they have left. Oh, how did I get here? My mom and dad, I've, I've gone through the end-of-life um, journey or path with both of them, but my mom died first, and she was in uh, Riverview Palliative Care for the last seven weeks of her life, and I have a full family complement, and we visited with her regularly at Riverview all day long, all evening long, and I noticed that a gentleman across the hall from my mom didn't have any visitors, and that may be by choice. Not everybody wants to be surrounded by people, but I just thought, wow, I, I felt badly for him, and I thought, gee, if, I wonder if there's anything I can do that could help that or impact that or change that, and it, it just struck me to my core that, oh my goodness, that he could use a friend. I wanted to help. So that's how I got into it. And really, I think for me, it's about connection. And this is a pretty amazing way to connect with people um, at such a tender and intense time of, uh, of their lives. And we talk about whatever it is they'd like to talk about, do an activity if there's a particular interest, doing a puzzle, reading a book, it gives you a point of departure for lots of rich conversation. I have found they're looking to share their stories, where they've come from, how they grew up, what their families look like, uh, what they did for employment, what interests them. Um, the most difficult stories I hear are about the family dynamics and some of the messy things that have gone on. And the person saying, oh, I wish I had done this differently with my child. So that just makes me, that makes me try harder in my own relationships, actually, um, so that I'm not saying that when it's my turn, when I'm at end of life. In some cases, people are telling me and the other volunteers things they wouldn't say to their own families um, because we're neutral. But sometimes then I might go back for another visit and they'll say, well, I talked to so-and-so about how I was feeling. And it's like, wow, tell me how that went for you. How did that feel? That's growth and, and really cool for that person and feel some peace as they're working through whatever it is they need to work through. But I am not a therapist. I just try to listen. It's not all doom and gloom conversation, and there is laughter and there are stories. Um, it's not all miserable and sad, and sometimes people are very much ready to go and, and they've said their, their goodbyes. Um, one of my matches was a 14, about a 14 month long match, and she, she was in her 90s and she wanted to go. She wanted to get out of, of her apartment and have a change of scene. So off we'd go with her walker, then wheelchair. And we were together for a long time. So we developed quite a nice relationship. And so that was, that was lovely. And she was lovely. And I did attend that funeral as well. I do care for these people very much. I have to protect myself because I also know I'm going to continue to do this. And I also want to be my best self for the person. So it doesn't help if I'm um, struggling uh, myself. I need to show up. I need to be present. And I also do take time between matches. I don't uh, start a match right away. Because uh, there, is, there is some grieving, absolutely. 
I keep an, an altar for my mom and dad, and I have various gemstones there. And that's part of my that's part of my process in terms of when one of my matches has passed. And I share that with my mom and dad at a, my wee little altar and, uh, and meditate on it a little bit. And also give thanks that I was able to meet this person before they died. Even though it's a concept we all know about, death, taxes, whatever you want to say, but it's taught me to accept that my own mortality, that this is all we have. This moment, the present, it's all we have. So live it. Live it and don't wait. Don't wait until tomorrow. It, it's a good reminder to me if I've been putting off something, calling somebody, writing a letter even, I do that a bit. Um, do it, do it now. So it informs my living about don't wait. And I think for me, I'm, I'm a realist and this is gonna happen to all of us, including me. And if I can somehow make this time of life a little easier on somebody else, I'm gonna try. But I just, I am comfortable. I am now so comfortable with talking about death and dying. I probably wasn't when I first started out with Palais Manitoba. I had no idea about the, how the, um, what they call active dying looks like. It gets hard, particularly as somebody gets closer to dying and you see, you bear witness to the physical decline. That gets hard for me. But it's a beautiful thing, and it's a real honor, I think, to bear witness to somebody who is transitioning out of this life into the next, because who knows what the next life brings? I have no idea. Maybe there's something even better than where we're at. But it is a real honor as to be part of something where you're ushering, ushering someone into the next the next realm. something that you said to me uh oh you said you're feeling motivated to to start volunteering more i told you that in private i didn't want <laughs> i didn't want that out there for the world to know no honestly as i listen to this show it, it it does it makes me realize how often i have selfishly said no and i think there's a thousand reasons to say no we get too busy we have too much going on i'm tired but i think every once in a while it's it's needed to say yes and to, to be out there and to, and to give back yeah and also you know when i think about the people i spoke with at the beginning of the show everyone talked about what they felt they didn't have to give like time money energy but so many people on the show today reminded us that it, it generates something you might get friendships you might get community or activities to do with your family so it doesn't just take and you know who else doesn't take? Our producers, who every week put the show together. Segway. Love a good segue. Sarah Tate, <laughs> Bridget Forbes, Andrew Friesen, Tanera McLean, and Betsy Trumpner. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I am Ifi Chiwetelu. Take care. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.